How's it going, everybody? My name is Lee Woodmancy, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And you are catching us right now in week three of our storyline series, where we are walking through the storyline of the Old Testament. Uh, I'm recording this video because we have a guest speaker who is going to be preaching uh, at our normally scheduled Equipping Institute time on Wednesday night. And so we're going to make sure we don't miss any material, and we're just going to walk through it this way. And so what I have here, I'm going to have the slides going to be displayed. Um, and as always, you can find all of our previous uh, series episodes that we have either on uh, YouTube or audio only. You can find all those here as well. So um, let's just not waste any time. Let's dive right into it. So we are in week three and I want to recap where we were from last time, which is when we were in week two, where we talked about essentially Abraham and his descendants all the way through the end of Genesis chapter 50. So basically we went from Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 50. And I just want to highlight two big things that we talked about when uh, we looked at Abraham and the covenant, <clears throat> and we looked at what God was actually at, uh, doing in those times. Um, one of those big things that we talked about was that God delights in reversals for his people. Um, and we see that from uh, Abram and Sarah were old and they couldn't have any children, and then they have children. We see that there is this um, upending of the natural order that we see where Ishmael and Esau were actually the firstborn sons to Abram and Isaac each. Uh, but then actually uh, Isaac and then Jacob are the ones that actually become the leaders of the family. That even though that there was the firstborn son, that actually the second born was the one who um, takes over as the most um, dominant, the leader of that family. And so we see that there is this uh, clear theme that God delights in this reversal for his people. And that also when we talk about the covenant, one of the things we're really going to handle that today is that the covenant um, is, is such a big deal that we should see that God is going to be faithful to his promises and to his covenant even when we are not. So even whenever we are faithless, God is faithful. Um, so those are two big ideas that we saw from last week. If you got any questions, you can go back to last last week or so, and you can listen to those from there. All right. Where are we heading in this session? Basically, what I want to do is I want to talk about the structure of the Pentateuch. I want to talk about the first five books of the Bible. And so what first thing I'm going to do is give us like this orientation of the terms and how I'm going to use the terms for Pentateuch, Torah, Book of the Law, Book of Moses, Moses's writings, whatever. We'll talk about that here in just a bit. Um, and then I really want to hit on the one overarching story that we're going to come back to over and over again. Uh, we talked in week one about there are some pretty key themes that are set in Genesis 1 through 11, and then there were some others that we see in Genesis 12 through 50. And now I want to take just one step back and look at all five books of the, of the Torah and see, okay, can we draw a through line in these? Because if we can draw a through line just in the first five books, well, then maybe we can draw a through line through the rest of the Old Testament. And then we'll just end with some final thoughts and we'll go from there. Yep. All right. So, Let's talk about this orientation of terms. I'm going to use multiple terms to describe the first five books of the Bible, and here are a couple of them. Number one is Pentateuch. Uh, the Pentateuch is a Greek word that just means five scrolls, and it just comes from these two Greek words, penta and tuxos. And penta tuxos is where that comes from, is just the first five scrolls or five books, right? So the first five books of the, uh, of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. Right. I will refer to that. Um, this is actually a term that got uh, 
popularized in Alexandria by Hellenistic Jews and Hellenistic Greeks, um, people that as they were um, in Alexandria, you think of the Library of Alexandria, there was this huge cultural center of learning that was there. Um, this is where people, when they were doing real uh uh, faithful study of the Old Testament. This was just a common term that they used, the Pentateuch, right? But this collection of works, the first five books of the Bible, are also known as the Torah, right? Or Torah. And this is just a Hebrew word that means these first five books, right? They don't mean literally five books because that word Torah literally means law or more importantly or more closely teaching or instruction, and I think that's really important for us to see because whenever we talk about the teaching or instruction of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the law, um, what we normally talk about as the law, that is actually what is setting forward for um, Jews. This is how you will learn how to relate to this God who has made a covenant with you, right? So this is Moses' attempt to teach the people how they are to interact with God, right? It makes sense. Um, I think we kind of rob something from ourselves when we just translate Torah only as law. Because whenever we think about Genesis and when we think about numbers, um, there is a whole lot of other stuff that is actually in those books other than what we would just call law, whether it is the ritual um, sacrifices, whether it is purity laws, whether it is laws related to the priesthood. Like there's a lot of that. Don't get me wrong. It's in Leviticus and we're going to talk about that today. However, there's a whole lot more going on. And even thematically and literarily, there's a whole lot more going on that we should really see. And I think that that would help us is if we see that that word Torah does not just mean law. It means instruction or teaching as well. But all that being said, these first five books of the, the Bible are also just called the law of Moses, the books of Moses or the book of the law, right? So even though I just went on this bit about uh, we shouldn't just call it the law, that is generally what it was referred to. And the reason for that is, is because laying underneath the meaning of the word law, we should read instruction or teaching, right? And specifically instruction or teaching as to how we are to relate to a holy God. Yeah. All right. There you have it. And then lastly, I just want to say that these first five books are the most important portion of the Hebrew canon. So when we talk about the, the Hebrew Bible, what it would be to have been a, um, a Hebrew or an Israelite living in the land or later Jews um, who have returned from captivity um, in Babylon, like this would have still been the most important collection of works that they had in their scripture because it is the foundational element that actually shows them how they are to relate to this holy God. So if it's that important, then we should be able to see some things that are uh, going to be critical moving forward for the rest of the scripture, right? We've talked about in our series on uh, hermeneutics, how the Old Testament was divided even in Jesus's day. And we talked about that was with the, the basically an acronym, the Tanakh, the Ta part, the Tanakh portions of scripture. The Ta was Torah, right? That's where we um, we should see that. The Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, you can go back and listen to our series on uh, hermeneutics and you can see how that is divided up. But the point that I want to make is it is critical for us to see how important those first five books are. Cool?
All right, so now that we've talked about what those first five books are and even the terms I'm going to use are going to be interchangeable between the Pentateuch and the Law or the Torah, I'm all I'm referencing the same five books. And those five books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Okay, um, so we're all on the same page. What then is one of the overarching stories that we can draw uh, or one of the major themes that we can see over and over? All right, so let me just say it this way. When we read the Torah, when we read the Pentateuch, we should see it as one singular work that has five individual volumes that go with it. Um, you can think about how Luke and Acts were both written by Luke in the New Testament, and they are actually two parts of one story, right? You've got part one, which is the gospel of Luke, and you've got part two, which is the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but those are actually meant to be read in concert with one another. And the way that we think about this is that the first five books of the Bible, they actually flow one to another very seamlessly. And we'll see how that happens here in just a bit. Um, but one of the cautions that I want to give us is, and I'm still in this uh, phrase from Joe Garner, he says that we shouldn't atomize these books. We shouldn't look at Genesis as being this one weird collection of Genesis 1 through 11 that talks about creation and then there's all this other stuff about the patriarchs, and those two are completely separate. And we shouldn't read Genesis separate from Deuteronomy, partly because the same guy wrote all five of those, right? Moses is the one who wrote all five of these. And my contention is that whenever Moses began penning um, Genesis, he had Deuteronomy in mind. Um, whenever we see Moses writing elements in Genesis, we have to keep in mind that he knows the rest of this story and he's going to get to that point, right? He knows about what happens in Exodus. He knows about what happens in Numbers. He knows about the ceremonial law. And as he is writing these elements about Abraham, we need to keep that in mind because he's going to bring that to a head later on. Okay, so we shouldn't atomize these books. We shouldn't separate them from their context. Yeah, the context of whatever it is you're reading in whatever chapter is going to fall within a narrative structure and a narrative context immediately around it. But the first big step back we take shouldn't just be, oh, the Old Testament. It actually should just be those first five books together. Okay. All right. So now that I've beat that horse sufficiently, how can we divide this, uh, this collection of works? And I would contend that there's really only two big sections. And those two big sections are Genesis 1 through 11, and then Genesis 12 all the way through Deuteronomy 34, which is hard for us to hear whenever we see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you're telling me out of all of those books, the first 11 chapters are one section, and then the rest, everything else, something like 100 and whatever number of chapters we have, that is a completely different section that is meant to go together? And my answer is yes, right? Um, we are going to keep coming back to one question and essentially one answer. So let's talk about what that one question is. And this is going to be the theme that we are going to draw for the rest of this session. Here's the question we keep coming back to. How can relationships be restored? That's it. How can relationship be restored? And here's what I mean by that. Whenever we look in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see relationship is going great. And then Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall. And now God is forced in this sense to like take action to restore relationship with the creation that he has made and 
for us as the created beings, those who bear God's image, we have broken relationships that we need to be restored in, right? And so the whole point here is that there is going to take, uh, someone has to take action. Someone has to have the initiative to restore these relationships. And what's the answer to Babel and when the tower you know, is uh, being erected and God scatters the people. Well, how are we going to have relationship with God? Here comes Abram, right? And you see how that works? So the question we're going to keep coming back to is um, how can relationship be restored? And what my contention is, is that there is literally one answer and one answer only ever. And that answer is God's covenantal faithfulness. If God is faithful even when we are faithless. If that is true, then whenever we see God act in the Old Testament or when we see him act in the New Testament, we should see that he is acting out of faithfulness to us. And what he's trying to do is he is trying to get to this point where relationship can be restored and we can have um, not just this blessing, but we can actually uh, we can actually receive the fulfillment of all the promises that he has made up until that point. So the question is, how can relationship be restored? And the answer is always only God's covenantal faithfulness. That is my contention. And one thing that I think we ought to see um, every time we crack open the Pentateuch is we should see that this collection of works, especially Deuteronomy, we'll hit on that as a really clear like clarion call, but this stands in for the rest of the scripture um, of, of the Torah. This work was written for people who were looking towards the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the nations, to bless the whole world through this one guy named Abram. So if you go back and listen to last week and whenever we talk about the covenantal Abraham, uh, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, 15 and 17, we'll see kind of smatterings of that um, throughout those three chapters. But in Genesis chapter 12, one through three, one of the promises that God makes to Abram clearly is that the whole world is going to be blessed through him. Now, if that's true, that God is actually going to bless the entire world and Moses knows it and he knows that God is faithful to his covenant, well, then we should be anticipating, okay, how's this going to work out? What's going to happen? What happens when Israel really messes up with the golden calf? How can relationship be restored? How is God going to bring about his covenantal faithfulness? And how are the nations going to be blessed through this? Because it looks terrible right now. That's the question we're going to look at for the rest of the session. And so basically what I want to do is I want to come back to that one question. How can relationship be restored? And what I want to do is I want to start looking at all, well, not all, I want to look at some of the instances in Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy, and we're going to see this theme, and there are plenty of examples. I'm going to give a couple here, but we're going to see how there are examples of there is a brokenness in relationship, and then God acts to restore that relationship in the context of his covenantal faithfulness, right? All right, so let's look at Genesis just real quick. Let me give us a couple of examples. Number one. Let's think about Adam and Eve when they sin. When you have Genesis 1 and 2, relationship is great. Everything is going well. Genesis chapter 3, 
there is this brokenness in relationship and you can actually go and look in Genesis chapter three, verse 21, right before we get to Genesis four with Cain and Abel. And what we'll see is that God in his goodness, he provides a covering for Adam and Eve. And the reason that's important is because one of the things that Moses highlights is that whenever they had fallen into sin, Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked and there was shame. Well, what does God do? Well, he kills an animal. He skins it and and he provides covering. He provides clothing for them. And this is a demonstration of how God is going to take the initiative in order to restore relationship with each other, with Adam and Eve. And also there's going to be this way of God providing for a means for them to be made right um, with him. I think this is a very, very nascent hint of how God is going to use the sacrificial system to, uh, to instruct the people that there must be a shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And we see that the author of Hebrews picks up on that idea as well, that without the shedding of blood, there cannot be remission of sins. But he goes so far as to say, yeah, but it ain't bulls and goats and stuff. It's actually God himself, right? And so God himself here in Genesis 3.21, he covers the shame of his creation. Yeah. So Adam and Eve, there's you an element of God taking the initiative to restore relationship. What about during the flood? As soon as the flood is um, foretold that God is going to destroy the whole world, who do we meet? We meet Noah and that he is called by God to build this crazy big boat and put all these animals on there and him and seven other people, eight total, are going to be saved through the flood. So even though God is announcing judgment, he is actually already providing, but this is how you're going to relate to me. He is already making a way for them to have right relationship with God. So we see Adam, and then we see this next big figure in Noah. We see God providing for both of them, right? So those are two big examples. Let's look at the third one, the Tower of Babel. I've already mentioned it. So whenever we get to the Tower of Babel, there in Genesis chapter uh, 10 and 11, really chapter 11, we see that there's humanity's pride is just going from bad to worse. And they start building a tower. They're going to show God that who they are. They're going to make a name for themselves. Well, then God scatters the people. And what's the next thing he does? He calls Abram. And what does he do in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3? He calls Abram and he immediately starts making covenants with him. He starts cutting a covenant with Abraham, making promises to this man that the one um, requirement that God has of Abram at this point is to believe him. That's it. It's just he's supposed to, to believe him. He's supposed to trust him. And so that is what we see Abram doing in Genesis uh, 11 and 12. And then let me talk about one last example. And let's look at Joseph's final words in Genesis. And it's not exactly his final words, but it's functionally the last words that we really need to hear. So I want to read for us Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is what Joseph is saying to his brothers, the ones who had sold him into slavery, who thought about killing him. This is what uh, Joseph says to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. 
So whenever you sold me into slavery, whenever you were thinking about killing me, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this is at the very end of Genesis, whenever um, Joseph is rescuing his brothers. There's about 72 folks that come out of the land of Canaan that are in uh, Jacob's family and Israel's family. And he saves all of them because he's the ruler of Egypt, essentially. And what he says is, hey, whatever it is that you meant for evil, God actually meant for good. Come now, right? You can see how this theme of God wanting to restore relationship is going to work out even in dire circumstances when it looks like there's no way that God can actually do that. And here we see him actually stepping to the plate and doing that. And he does that through Joseph and he saves him in Egypt. And then Joseph turns around and provides for his family, right? So that's how this theme is starting to get traced. Remember, Moses is writing from the perspective of he knows all this with the story going to happen um, when he started writing in Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. All right. So let's look at the next book. Let's look at Exodus. And here we're going to be a little more thematic. Um, so let's just talk in generalities here. In Exodus, we see that Israel is in bondage. And then what happens from there? God calls Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, right? Charlton Heston shows up and says, let my people go to Pharaoh, right? He doesn't do that for no reason. He does that because God called him, right? The burning bush um, in Genesis 13, and he gets moved in his spirit where he goes back to Egypt where he had recently fled, and he is going to lead the people out of slavery, out of bondage, Right? Come now, you see this theme. How is relationship going to be restored when God's people are crying out in Egypt? Well, I'm going to send someone to deliver them, right? In fact, we'll talk about the Song of Moses uh, later, but in uh, Genesis 5, or excuse me, Exodus 15, whenever we have um, Israel crossing the Red Sea, we see um, when they get to the other side, they sing a song, and this is the first time the word salvation is used in the Bible. And what that word salvation means is that they have been rescued from, uh, from peril, that they were going to die, and now they are not dead because God has provided. He has been the one who has made a way for a relationship to be restored. Right. So we see that there in Exodus. And then we see this promise in Exodus 19 that as Israel is gathered at Mount Sinai, we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. As they're gathered there at Mount Sinai, the promise in Exodus 19 is that this nation, Israel, who just came out of bondage in Israel or in Egypt and are going into the promised land, they are going to be a kingdom of priests. Like the entire nation is going to be holy to God. Why? Well, that's so that they can represent God to the nations, so that the nations can be blessed through him and through them, and that God's blessing would go to all the nations, fulfilling the promise made to Abraham because God took the initiative, because God is the one who provides, because God is answering the question, how is the world going to know that relationship can be restored? He says in Exodus 19, because there's going to be an entire nation made of priests who are going to understand my holiness and who are going to understand how I operate. Yeah? Let's drive on. We have Israel and the golden calf. 
Moses goes up on the mountain. He's going up there to receive the the Ten Commandments. Remember, Charlton Heston coming down with these two stone tablets. And literally, he's up there for like 40 days. Um, you can actually go and look in Exodus 24 and then in Exodus 32, where we actually see the golden calf. This is all one 40-day period between Exodus 24 and 32. And Moses is up there receiving the law, the Torah, the instruction, the Ten Commandments, as well as a whole bunch of other laws. And while he's up there for 40 days, Israel starts getting real antsy and they're like, you know what? Let's let's forget about this whole Moses and God thing. Let's get us a golden calf. And that's what they do. And they shows uh, Moses shows up and he sees that there is this wickedness where they are not only worshiping an idol, but they are forsaking God completely. And so how does God remedy that? He gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle where God is no longer going to be like this high and um, ethereal uh abstract concept that's going to be up on the mountain where only Moses can go. No, no, no. He's going to build a really cool tent called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And God is going to dwell there. If you want a representation, you can think of it this way. There's this golden calf that this desire that Israel has for this representation of who God is, even though they completely missed the mark and they shouldn't have done it. God provides for them. This is where you will know my presence rests, right? And that's where we see God's presence becomes a huge deal in the rest of Exodus into numbers, right? And so what's going to happen from there? is God is providing a way for them to know how a relationship is to be uh, maintained, right? And so what happens is they finally build the tabernacle, but there's a problem. After the tabernacle was constructed, uh, Moses is given really clear instructions of how they're supposed to build this thing, the exact length and architectural plans for all sorts of stuff. They build the tabernacle, and at the very end of Exodus, in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38, Moses, there, let me just read it for us. Um, that way we're not just taking my word for it. In uh, Exodus 40, the tabernacle's been constructed, and so now we're like, okay, God's plan to actually come into relationship and restore this relationship with his people, this is where we see, okay, it's coming, coming to a head. Verse, uh, uh, Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the Lord covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So his glory comes off the mountain and goes into the tent, and it's filling it. And Moses was not able to enter it. What? I thought the whole point of this tabernacle was so that we could have God's presence with us. Yeah, that is the point. But we've misunderstood God's presence in some sense because he is completely holy and he is dangerous. His holiness will eradicate you if you are sinful. And what was the last big episode of sin? This golden calf. And because that golden calf issue has not been finally dealt with, we've got to deal with it right now. Moses goes to celebrate um, God dwelling with his people through the tabernacle, and he can't. Why? Because he has sin. And that's how Exodus ends. And the very next book is Leviticus. And so in Leviticus, what we have is a series of laws, a series of commands, a series of tasks that Israel is to undergo so that they can rightly relate to God. Here's what I want us to see. 
Number one, there is this lingering issue of Israel's sin with the golden calf from Exodus 32 still hanging around, right? From Exodus 19 all the way through Numbers 10, 11 or so, Israel is at the mount, uh, the foot of the mountain at Mount Sinai. They've been there for like a year, year and a half, something like that, right? And so there's these lingering issues. And so as God is saying, you can't have relationship with me just any way you want. You're going to have to do it the right way. He begins issuing ways in which they are going to um, be able to deal with their sin and God's holiness. And so what happens in Leviticus is that God is going to focus on his holiness and he's going to show us how we're to relate to him so that we don't get incinerated because he is a holy God who will kill you because he is dangerous right? It is like the street. Um, the illustration I use is that I want my children to be afraid of the street. There is danger there. They can die. If they get goofy and play out in the street, they can die easily. I don't want them to be cowering in fear in the house because the street is just on the other side of the wall. No, 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 no. I want them to understand that there is danger there, but there is also all sorts of benefits. Like that's how we receive life in many ways. Where we go and come from life is right out there. God's like that. And he says, look, if you're going to relate to me, you need to do it the right way because I can kill you and I will kill you because of my holiness must eradicate sin. Right. And so Leviticus is going to address those exact things. And so here's what I want you to see. Leviticus, in many ways, is really focused on only three major issues. And we'll hit a fourth one that's kind of the central part of the book. But there's three major areas. There's these rituals. Think about it like the sacrifices um, and the celebrations, the feast days they have. They focus on the priesthood, the people who are going to relate from the people to God and intercede for them, and purity. These purity laws where there's all sorts of uh, discussion about um, cleanliness and uh, what makes someone clean or unclean, right? And so you can think about it this way, and this is actually taken from the Bible Project, just a screen grab from their graphic depiction. This is the book of Leviticus, right? There's seven major sections, and each section is basically going to relate to one of these three areas of the ritual um, focus, the priesthood, and the purity laws, right? And so that's going to be where we're going to see these go in just a moment, but they're in the middle in chapter 16 and 17, we're going to see something else. And so Leviticus is focused on the ritual purity, the or ritual laws, the priesthood and purity. But then right there in the very middle in chapter 16 and 17 is what we call the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, right? The day of atonement. And that is literally the center of the book because what happens is the ritual um, elements of Leviticus are on the outside in those uh, first and last chapters. And then you work your way inside to the priesthood, uh, the purity laws, and then right in the middle is the day of atonement. So this is like a literary structure where Moses has woven into the fabric of Leviticus. This is how you were to relate to God and this is how big a deal he is. It leads to there is one day where ultimately God is going to deal with the sin of Israel. And it's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where there's these two goats. One is killed and its blood is sprinkled on the altar. And then the other one is the sins of the nation are confessed over this goat. And that goat is sent out into the wilderness to be consumed by whatever happens to it. That's what we call the scapegoat. That's the Day of Atonement. That is how Leviticus is drawing our attention to this question, how is relationship to be restored? Moses cannot go into the tent of meeting. He can't. 
until we have these ritual acts that are lined out and there's obedience to that, that there is a priesthood established where people are going to be able to have intercession made for them between God and man, and that they must be pure. And ultimately that is seen in Yom Kippur with the Day of Atonement, right? And so where this ultimately leads us then is that Numbers opens with Moses in the tabernacle. So Leviticus kind of ends just kind of on a whimper. It seems weird. It has all these purity laws. There's a little bit of narrative stuff, but there's really not too much of narrative. It's really what we think about with Leviticus and why everyone kind of avoids it, frankly, in our Bible reading plans. But let me note for us in uh, Numbers. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. This is what uh, Moses writes for us. After writing about Leviticus and all the priesthood and all the rituals and all of the sacrifices and all the purity laws and Yom Kippur, he says this in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, so they haven't left Sinai yet, in the tent of meeting. There it is. It worked. It worked. God's plan, his great designs of how relationship is going to be restored, we have now seen that it works. God's covenantal faithfulness to Abram is still alive because God is still interacting with his people, which brings us now to numbers. Yeah. So in the book of Numbers, first thing I want us to see is the rituals, the priesthood, and the purity laws, they worked. Because Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of the meeting at the end of Exodus, the beginning of Leviticus, and then now at the beginning of Numbers, he's in the tent. So it worked. Here's the second thing. Israel eventually leaves Sinai after about a year and a half. They've been there for quite a while. They finally get going. So Numbers 10, they take off, right? And this is where the narrative starts picking up speed. I think a lot of folks have a big misconception about what Numbers is. We'll handle that later. Driving on. What happens is that they get going. Let's pick it up in Numbers chapter 10. They finally set out from uh, from Mount Sinai. Let's pick it up in verse 32 or verse 33. And so they set out from the mountain of the Lord three days journey and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out by the camp. Oh, that's nice. That's great. That's great. God's presence is with them. The covenant's leading them or the ark of the covenant is leading them. And when it stops, the God's presence stops. They set up camp around there and they camp out and they've done that for three days. Pick it up in chapter 11, verse one. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. What? We have been at Sinai for a year and a half or so. We've received the covenant. We've seen how God has made a way for us to have a relationship with him <coughs> through the Levitical law, the rituals, the priesthood, the purity laws, the Yom Kippur. That has made it so Moses can go in. They finally get fired up and they leave. They make it three days before they start complaining. But what does God do at the end of chapter 11? The thing they're complaining about is they don't have any meat. Um, and this is a really humorous, ironic kind of way. Go read uh, Numbers chapter 11, verses 31, all the way through the end of the chapter. They were complaining about not having any meat. And so God gives them quail and basically makes them sick of it. Go read that narrative. But here's the point. God provides for them even in the middle of them making it, again, three days into the journey. Yeah? So he makes them three days. It makes it three days into the journey. They complain, but yet still God provides. He doesn't just incinerate them all, even though he could. He doesn't do that. The next thing we see is that 
fast forward much later into the story, which we will talk about uh, whenever we get to uh, October 4th is when we'll talk about numbers especially. But we see even Moses messes up. And in his anger, he actually strikes a rock instead of speaking to it and having water come out of it. And you can see that uh, narrative taking place in Numbers chapter 20. And as a result of that, Moses is disqualified from entering into the promised land. And so who gets to take his place? Joshua. Joshua is now going to be appointed as the new leader. He's the leader elect, but we've still got the rest of Deuteronomy and we'll get to that here in just a bit about Joshua. But here's the point. If the problem is relationship has now been broken between God's people and himself and that even Moses is like the best example, even he messes up, what are we going to do? We don't stand a chance. Ah, I want to give you Joshua. And that's what God does later in the narrative, right? And so here's the last thing. What Moses then sets out to do is he, at the very end of the book, and you can look in chapters 32 and then chapters 34 and 35 of Numbers, he's actually going to set the boundaries of the land that Israel is going to inherit. Even after all of this failure and all of this sin, Moses is still saying, no, 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 but God's still going to provide. He's still faithful to his promise. You are going to take the land. Joshua's going to lead you in there. And when you get there, this is what your land is going to look like. Here's the allotments for each person each tribe yeah so even then in the middle of their failure that moses can't go into the land himself he is still saying no no no, but god's going to be faithful yeah okay that brings us to deuteronomy this is our last book and then we'll have some final thoughts and we'll wrap it up so let me just say it this way deuteronomy is essentially a series of large speeches or sermons from moses we actually see a chunk of more law that is recounted in the middle section but at the very beginning and the very end it's just a huge collection of moses having a big speech well the reason for that is because moses is actually preparing a generation who had not been at mount Sinai to receive the law, and now he's preparing them like, hey guys, this is what you're supposed to do. Uh, In fact, the words that we get for, or the reason we call this book Deuteronomy is because it comes from two Greek words, deuteros and namos, and that means a second law. Namos is just the word for law, and deutero or deuteros is just the word for two or second. And so what we have there is this is a second giving of the law. Well, why does there need to be a second giving of the law? Well, a whole generation is out dead in the wilderness, out there in the sand, right? And so now Moses has to prepare this nation, this generation who had not seen God's covenantal faithfulness at Mount Sinai or um, coming through the Red Sea, and he needs to prepare them. So he tells them their history. He recounts the law. He goes back over the purity, the ritual, and the priesthood laws, and he talks about Yom Kippur. Like All that is basically rehashed because he's preparing a second generation to go into the land. These are the ones who are now going to take over the land and fulfill God's promise because the previous generation disqualified themselves, right? So what we see there is Moses is preparing this new generation to occupy the land. And so what happens in Deuteronomy? In fact, I'm just going to turn there and look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'm going to read from verses 15 through 30 because this kind of sums up the, the whole bit of what's going on in Deuteronomy. And it's this. We have a choice to make in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. Let me read that for us. This is Moses speaking. 
See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And then verse 17 on basically carries on that idea. But here's the point. Moses says, we have a choice to make. However, I know y'all are going to mess it up. I know you're going to mess it up. Let's look there in verse 17. But if your hearts turn away, you will and you will not hear, but you are drawn to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live in the land that you are going into the Jordan to, uh, to enter into and possess it. And he basically says, guys, you have a choice. And that choice is going to lead you either to obedience or disobedience. And, and hear me clearly when I say this. Moses knows an exile is coming. He knows Babylon is coming. And the way he knows that is because he's seen Israel's track record so far. However, he also knows that God is good and gracious because earlier in this chapter, God actually makes a promise that he will circumcise their hearts. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And what Moses says there, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. And you can hear the echoes of what we call the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. Um, you can see that there's this call, this clarion call to hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is singular. He is one. He is one being. And we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, right? And everything we got. And what Moses is saying is you're going to be incapable of doing that unless God circumcises your heart. And he's calling all the way back to Genesis 17 with the literal physical circumcision that was given as a sign of the covenant to Abraham. And Moses says, actually, that's not good enough. Having a circumcision of your flesh and being marked out as someone who's received a promise is not enough because you need to be made where you are capable of receiving the promise and being able to obey. To hear, to listen implies that we are to obey and we should. And then our love that we have for God is what generates the motivation for us to obey. And what Moses says in Genesis or uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 is that God's going to circumcise your hearts so that, that can actually happen. And this is what happens at the very end of Deuteronomy. Moses lays out the law. He says, there's this promise I set before you life and death. I am handing you off to Joshua. We'll see that in the very next book, Joshua. And then Moses goes up on the hill and dies. And what happens is all the tension from Genesis until now, how is relationship going to be restored is unresolved. Here's my point, is that Moses has been leading this people for however long, the last 40-something years, and he knows God is going to be faithful to his covenant. He knows that there's broken relationship. He knows they need to have their hearts circumcised, but he also knows there's going to be this future exile, and we're just left to say, okay, but did that fix it? Kind of. So here's where I want to bring us to the main point for everything that we've been saying this whole session, if we can see patterns being set in Genesis 1 through 11, and that carries all the way through Genesis, maybe those patterns and those themes, or in this case, this question of how a relationship is to be restored, maybe those themes and questions actually carry not just from Genesis, but Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. 
And if those themes carry all the way to Deuteronomy, do they not also carry through to the rest of the Old Testament? And I think the answer to that is yes. So here's some final thoughts. Don't look at Genesis through Deuteronomy as these standalone books. They all tell one story. Moses wrote all of it collectively at one time. He knows how Deuteronomy is going to end when he starts writing Genesis 1. Yeah? Don't look at these as atomized books. Next, we should see that God's arc of redemption is quite long. All that tension that's been building from Genesis till the end of Deuteronomy is unresolved. Moses dies. Joshua is going to lead the people into the land. And like, are they even going to make it? Judges actually picks up at the very end of Joshua's reign and things still aren't done. Right. His arc of redemption is absolutely long. However, God is going to relieve and resolve this tension over time. Like that's why we have the Old Testament. That's the whole point is that God is going to play out over time, um, progressively revealing more and more about who he is to his people throughout the course of Scripture. Right. Throughout the course of the storyline of the Old Testament. And so God's answer to this question of how will relationship be restored is Jesus. And and of course, that's what I'm going to say. But don't just think of it as like a really trite thing of like, well, yeah, of course, God's answer to the question of how is relationship going to be restored with him, Jesus, like, yeah, of course, that's what I'm supposed to say. But like, we need to see that that tension has been building since Genesis. That tension is building and is in many ways at a crescendo at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses dies. The guy who is supposed to lead us there dies. He doesn't even get to enter into the promised land. And so here's the thing that I want us to see is that not only is God's answer to this question only ever always Jesus, here's another element that I want to say is that God's promise has been partially fulfilled now, but we ultimately wait his consummation. We see it in Jesus. Yeah, we absolutely see it in Jesus, but there is more to be done from here. And so that's where we are. We come back to this point of saying this is the storyline of what we see in Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy is answering this one question, how will relationship be restored? And the answer is only ever always God's covenantal faithfulness. His faithfulness to his own promises is the only way that this relationship is going to be restored. And we see that ultimately in Jesus. But even as Christians on this side of the cross, and we recognize and see that Jesus has acted on our behalf and that we are to respond to that grace, we still know there's more to come. There's work for us to do here. We have a responsibility to share that story with other people, and we await the day whenever he is going to consummate the kingdom and he is going to come in glory, and he is ultimately going to bring about this restoration of relationship between God and his creation, right? We wait that day, and what we say along with our brother John in Revelation is that come, Lord, quickly. Amen. Come, Lord, quickly. Please come quickly because we are longing for that day. Yeah. Um, so that's where we are. We've covered the structure structure of the Pentateuch, um, and we have hit um, uh, basically the storyline of what's going to happen in those five books. And what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're actually going to start following the storyline one more time. This is actually where we're heading over the next couple of weeks. We have hit uh, weeks one, two, and three. We've covered all the prehistory all the way to the structure of the Pentateuch. And so next session, we are going to hit Israel in bondage, and we're going to talk about Moses, but I'm also really wanting to take a dive into issues related to slavery. Like, what's the morality of slavery? How do we as Christians deal with that? Um, we're going to talk about those things in the next session. So, there it is. If you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. We'll have the slides available online. We'll have those resources there. 
If you're listening to this on audio only, we'll have all the slides and resources. You can check it out on our website. Um, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. And uh, I just want to end like I always do, just by saying, do good and don't sin.